In a world needing the horses more now than ever, the horses can't bring their magic, medicine, and message without the courage and leadership of equine-assisted practitioners. Welcome to Soulful Money and Mindset, the podcast for equine-assisted practitioners. Thank you so much for being here with me today, Kansas. It's it's a thrill uh, to get to talk to you, especially after the Natural Horsemanship Revolution Conference. That was so exciting and ex- inspiring on what everyone had to say, yourself included, and the different backgrounds that each person came from. I mean, you're an actress, performer, horse trainer, trick roper, and I must say, I watched your Roping. I have tried roping in Buck Brannaman's clinics, and I end up with more rope around me and the horse than any anywhere else. So it was awesome to watch. You're a mom, a daughter, a wife, a sister. I mean, there's a lot of identities going on here. Well, I mean, I think that that's just natural. I mean, a lot of us wear many different hats, and we go through different uh, phases in our lives. Uh, we're all uh, daughters of somebody. <laughs> Right. daughters or sons we all have a mother so yeah i mean and and i've i've walked through many different um uh avenues and paths in life as i've been trying to find my way as many people do so when you say you know i'm an actress i'm not really an actress right now but i did have experience in that as well um you know but first and foremost i i would say i'm a student of the horse and a student of life and, uh, you know, a woman who's here trying to speak from her heart and pay attention to the lessons that life keeps throwing. Oh, that's yeah. yeah. I think a lot of times we get caught up in the externals and lose the lessons that are there, particularly with the horses. So you've had a lot yeah, of roles in life. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because oftentimes people want, I think about maybe 10, 15, maybe 20 years ago, there was this conversation a lot about, you know, okay, who are you? What is your identity? What is your identity attached to? What do you do? And my response would be, you know, I do a lot of things, but I would just say, oh, I ride horses. And that was it. And leave it at that. Um, And I still am quite reluctant, you know, really call myself kind of a horse trainer. Um, I'm a rider and I do teach horses to do things. Um, But you know, it's, uh, it's what I have to put sometimes on my taxes or on, you know, government forms as horse trainer, but I think we all wear lots of hats and that's what you're speaking to. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, speaking of roles, the different roles that we play, I'm curious to hear what role have the horses played in your life? Oh, gosh. I mean, I started riding when I was about two. Um, I don't really remember. I was just always kind of swooped up on a horse. And, um, you know, horses were always around. My uncles had horses. My cousin and I grew up riding together. And, you know, I tried a lot of different activities as a youth. um, But horses was the main thing that stuck. And I was one of those horse crazy girls. And that's all I really wanted to do. You know, dancing, that was fun for a little bit. Um, but I really wanted to make sure that I always had horses in my life. And so I've never known a time really when horses were not in my life. Um, I ended up joining, uh, going away to summer camp and never came home is the short version. Um, 
And uh, there was a ranch up about three hours north of Los Angeles called Riata Ranch that had a Western performance team. It started out as a riding school and a summer camp and taught so many life lessons and values as, that, as we know happens around most equestrian facilities. Um, but at that time that I went, there was really this Western performance team and I learned to do some of that trick roping that you enjoyed so much. That became a huge passion of mine. And mostly because I would say it was a, a bit of a solitary experience and I had time in roping to really just kind of be alone and be in that study. It's the same type of mastery that you have to really um, spend thousands and thousands of hours doing, just like uh, an instrument. Um, it has the same subtle textures. And I would say with with the art of horsemanship as well, you know, those fine motor skills, all of that, that you're really getting the muscle memory into the body that things become second nature. Um, it, I think because I started at such an early age, that all has just become very, very natural. So the trick roping and trick riding were all introduced to me at that riding school at Riata Ranch. Uh, and I started there when I was 11 years old and was part of a professional team um, as a youth. And then meandered my way up into um, the uh, acting world and the stunt world, and then got invited to be a part of a production called Cavalia, where I was a trick writer and, and Roman writer uh, for, for uh, that touring show. And then I also um, uh, took a position where I was actually training and buying horses and preparing them for the show. But the interesting part is really the turning point for me and what ho what role horses played in my life because they were my work and I was really trained to to I would say not unlike the the cowboy who the horse is their partner to do real living ranch work um you know our expression and the way that we uh found you know value and our place and dignity um, with the trick riding team was really with the horse and the horse was the passport, the vehicle with which we expressed ourselves. So they were our partner, but it was also very work related. Um, and, and again, I carried that through with, with my, with my identity and my work in Cavalia, but it wasn't until I became a mother, um, that I started to notice that horses had also been this, this healer that was not overtly spoken about and the horses had been my healer all the time and I hadn't really um, focused my attention on that and but I became much more curious about it after I became a mother and I had uh, this this other journey of kind of the subtler feminine qualities in, in life and in that journey this was a 2005 um, I started to learn about equine facilitated learning, equine assisted therapy, um, equine guided education. And so I was guided to the work of Ariana Strozzi, who founded the equine guided education uh, organization and um, was a forefront of all of the dialogue that's going on with the horse as healer industry. And that was really the turning point for me because I had worked with horses all my life. I known there was a mystical quality there. <laughs> for lack of a better term. I knew that they were working with us on subtle levels. I knew that there was energy, but we didn't really have the language or even the science and research, research at that point to back all of this up. And so I was just starting that, that path of discovery back um, in 2000, 2007, 2008. Um, and so that became much more of like being consciously on the path, I would say, if you will, and being much more present and aware to what was happening, not just in the physical realm of where we kind of use horses in a more active exercise or whether 
passively the horses are working us in the subtle domains, you know, in dream time and in a more, we can even say in a more shamanic quality. Um, but the thing that I really appreciated about equine guided education and learning from um, Ariana Strozzi Mazzucci is that it was really incorporating that into a very grounded practical sense. And it had a lot of credibility, um, both in the business world, in the corporate world, and ultimately, you know, me taking it also into the horse world. And you, you know, there's a point here that I think you're making or at least alluding to. And I think it gets lost a lot of times in equine assisted work or equine guided work because we humans get so focused on being client centered, you know, caring for the client, creating and holding space for the client. And you and I spoke at the conference briefly about what about the horses and the well being of the horses from your point of view? What would you, what have been your observations around really? holding the well-being of the horse in all of that equine-assisted work? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I mean, I think there's so many subtleties to it, and I think that we're still learning and discovering with every interaction, without a doubt. Um, One of the things that I've noticed is extremely helpful. It's not always possible because many people are operating out of a very small, you know, home business where they tend to be alone. Um, But I think having uh, another person on staff who can kind of be the external eyes and ears of the horse, having more people in the space to really be able to hold the energy of a group and also really care for the horses, that was very much my role in um, uh, facilitating and co-facilitating programs, you know, at Skyhorse in California with Ariana. I would be there somebody who would really keep on that subtle energy of, you know, with the horses and with the people. And then another person who was facilitating, Ariana, was able to really hold the class and continue with that teaching point. Um, and I think a lot of times there's information that is shared um, and that the horses are giving us feedback that sometimes we can miss and perhaps we don't have time to really, you know, delve into and um, being present to that and being very alert and awake to that by having, it's like a horse in, our, in a natural herd, right? You know, if you have, say, four or five or 10 or a couple dozen horses in a herd environment, we have these sentinels that are kind of outside and they're really looking at the larger environment and really holding the space energetically in a bigger way. And I think that in our human herds and our human interactions is also a really valuable piece. Um, and oftentimes that, that really um, requires kind of collaboration. It, it requires um, sharing and opening up um, our, our really our hearts and, and expanding our, our capacity to really work with others and be in that, that synergy. It, it, it does. I think it's such sensitive work. It does take some time before people really find a compatible partnership. Um, but I really see that as being a wonderful, useful tool to help. Um, the other thing that I've in my journey, even before I discovered and became, you know, certified with equine guided education, is I was studying a lot with um, First Nations, Indigenous people, and um, Native American uh, horsemen. 
And one of the things that we discussed and observed is how horses that are able to have a natural um, herd environment who are free to move, they're really able to kind of take on some of, we could say, the energy of what is being transmuted in the space, and they can move it through them. And they naturally, you know, either by passing manure or going off and having a role, they have the freedom to move. And I think that is really important to know with our um, horses that we're bringing into a healing setting, that they're not always in confinement and that we pay attention to, you know, being able to get outside the box and being able to get outside the stall. Because, you know, I had a, a, a time in my life where I really felt no horses should ever be in stalls. And okay, that's not really practical. <laughs> it's a little idealistic, but um, being able to make sure that they really do get proper turnout, making sure that, because it's not everybody can do that. Some people do have the space, but I understand that we have to kind of meet everybody where they're at and to be able to have that, um, you know, for the horses that they can have that freedom to move and freedom to process. Um, that's another, I think, fundamental piece. And, and really just paying attention. If we're the ones that are actively with our horses, then we know day to day what changes there are. I think, um, large, uh, facilities that might have a lot of, say, you know, riding for the disabled programs or things like that. Um, sometimes things will get lost through, you know, grooms, assistants, volunteers, or different care workers. Um, and that's something that we have to, have the responsibility as a um, as a business owner or as a equestrian director, whatever title it is, to really pay attention to what energies everybody is bringing into the space. I mean, I've certainly seen it in um, in dynamics where you have a a stable of eighty horses and who you bring in to do um, all every even the the most menial tasks. They're really bringing their energy into the space, and that all contributes in multiple ways. And and um, you know, it's kind of like you have to pay attention to the smallest thing because eventually that can grow and, you know, eventually create perhaps a, a, a dissonance. And really what we're seeking is to have true, you know, coherence and harmony amongst our herds and for, you know, the equine partnership so that all the information can come through as clearly as possible. Yeah, that is so that was a long-winded answer. <laughs> well, it was a great answer. And... <laughs> Um, you know, this podcast is really for equine assisted practitioners. And, you know, what I'm finding though, or of course, people in general are, are listening in sometimes. And because, you know, the horse is a part of our team, a part of our herd. And horses have family out there. I'm using the term loosely, but, you know, what you're saying really could apply to the performance industry, you know, rodeo, racing. And <clears throat> I know these topics came up at the conference. And it was really encouraging to hear someone like Ty Murray standing up there going, we need to change this. The horsemanship needs to change and then really demonstrate what really ethical, good horsemanship, how that can open, unlock a horse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, to take a Clydesdale into working cattle, I was going, whoa, you know, that was Mm -hmm. awesome to watch. And oh, so- it it was it was great. It was it was fantastic. And and Ty and I we we joked a lot because there's always the separation between horsemanship and every other discipline. We we kept laughing about here it is. It's always classified as something else. Where where truly you you know a person lifelong horse person you can't really tell where that ends and where it begins because it just becomes who you are. Um, but obviously there is this this separation 
where, okay, you do your discipline, your sport, you know, say it's jumping or cutting or whatnot, and then you take a horsemanship class, <laughs> and that's separate. And somehow that seems to be like, you know, um, you know, ground handling, train trailering and those things. But really, I think what we're missing is that it is your entire way of being and the philosophy of how you approach everything you do with your horse. You know, in the uh, arenas I run in, we say how you do one thing is how you do everything. I'm sure you said that yourself. It's so true. And I have seen people on horseback and I've had the thought, I would hate to be married to you, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, because they were just um, communicating so directly and aggressively. And Mm -hmm. I, you know, if people would stop and think about who am I being right now, you make a a great point around how we could get things done, how energy flows. You've gone across genres with horses What do you see happening out in the space with horses right now? You know, in different performing areas, uh, equine assisted, have you noticed any shifts or changes going on? Um, One thing that I find is interesting is, again, like rewind maybe 17 years ago, I was noticing this conversation about energy and about, you know, how can we show up better for our horses? And now it seems to be very much commonplace. Um, something that may, you know, 20, 25 years ago would have been thought as a little bit too woo-woo now has become a little bit more um, mainstream. And I think a lot of people are becoming more reflective. Ultimately, you know, excellent horsemen have a wonderful power of observation. And it's not just that observation and timing, both in the horse and when to do it, a technique, but it's also self-study and self-observation. And you have to really be, I think, reflective. And that has become, you know, with the advent of YouTube and, you know, everybody having their own channels and, and so much information out there, the conversations and the dialogue and the vocabulary that people are getting, people are starting to realize how to get that extra refinement. Um, and I think, you know, there's, 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 kind of a divergent past. There's those who are still using it for um, maybe the conventional paradigm of just, I want to win that that championship. And then there's others who are really using it into, oh my gosh, I'm going to want to better my relationship with my horse so that I work on such an intuitive level that we are just completely harmonious and synergistic. Um, so I, I really see it expanding out exponentially, but we do still have kind of like perhaps two different worlds. We have those that are very based. um, I would love to find another term other than saying like ego-based, you know, that are driven perhaps by, you know, just, you know, fame, competition, uh, finances. And we also have another one that is truly based maybe like of our letting our souls meaning purpose and core values, you know, letting it drive that part of the relationship. Um, And so I think a lot of people are also just for Ty Murray to really come up and be so humble and vulnerable and say, hey, I've done everything bad you could do with horses. And I knew I needed to change. And so I went to school and I studied and this is what I've learned in my 20 plus years of getting to be a better horseman. Having that vulnerability, having that um, humility, that's something that I don't know if we would have seen as much, you know, a few decades ago. And so I think, um, you know, as a, as a human species, we're growing, we're growing in many ways. And, and truly, you know, as a student of the horse, 
I'm constantly interested in how can we become more horse-like? You know, they are so ready to start fresh again with us. Of course, we can make mistakes, but honestly, they're, they're very, very compassionate. And I think the more that we can have uh, forgiveness for each other and understand even this, this person that you're, you're mentioning, you know, I wouldn't want to be married to you. Well, I think we've all had our worst moments. We've all, I haven't talked to any horse trainer who hasn't said, gosh, boy, did I treat that horse? And I just didn't know I was ignorant. And we've all been subject to those moments of ignorance. And so, um, you know, just to have more compassion for ourselves and our journey, it is all a journey, all hopefully getting a little bit better. And the horses are just waiting for us to catch up. So true. So true. I would love it, it, it just for a moment to hear about your experience with Cavalier, because I've been to the big tent in Portland, Oregon in 2016, left in tears from that show. What was your experience like in partnering with those horses? I mean, the precision and the partnering that must have had to have gone on. What was that like? Hmm. Um, well, that's a whole, you know, book on a, of in and of itself, because there's just so many stories, because I did have a long history, um, starting back in, you know, 2004. So, uh, I've seen it from so many different incarnations and it's just such a beautiful show. I, like you, cried the first time I saw it. I had been cast, but I'd never seen the show. I said, okay, I'm going to be in this. And when I watched it, this was back again in 2004 with Frederick Pignon and Magali Delgado and all the original cast. I was so moved because it was so emotionally evocative and people hadn't seen anything like that before. Something um, being in relationship with the horse that was so connected by the heart um, and the values I believe that Cavalia has come to represent and by by no means is perfect at, but the values that it really strived to represent, those higher ideals. Um, to me, I think that gave everybody a, a, you know, it's a French company, so I can say raison d'être, a reason to be. It gave everybody such a, a, an extended sense of purpose. Um, and so, you know, in, initially a lot of people were really hired to to uphold those values. And I think being in such an international um, uh, group and community, there's writers from Kyrgyzstan, there's writers from the US, from you know Canada, uh, Australia, from Europe, all over. And everybody was bringing such a different um, viewpoint and perception and being able to, again, open up to more ideas. That to me was so fresh. I mean, we often get... Um, uh, surrounded by those that we're very familiar with in whatever discipline we choose. And so, you know, we don't perhaps go outside of our community as much. And this really kind of put us in that, it put me in that situation where, oh, okay, I get to, you know, see how trick riders from the East Coast do it. And then how the Cossack riders work. And, oh, how do they start their horses in in, in this domain? And, you know, how how many different ways you can stop a horse? I'll tell you, that was one thing, you know, I came from a place where we hissed to our horses. So we'd say, shh, to stop. Okay. But you can also whistle, which I find kind of hard when I'm in a hurry to make sure my lips are wet enough <laughs> to get a good enough whistle. But there's a lot of people who stop on a whistle. Um, uh, of course, we know a woe. So it was just the idea of there's just so many different ways, you know, um, 
some people believe you don't want to make any noise and not talk to a horse and other people will really use tone of voice. That's something that in the performance horse world that we, we use a lot because, you know, you have music and obviously the audience and things like that, but you can connect with your horse, especially at Liberty or something that I would do like standing up on top of, you know, two horses, Roman riding. I don't have, you know, my legs or my seat. So my voice is a primary aid to connect with the horse and, um, you know, it's, it's using a whole different um, kind of guidebook to be able to operate and manage. And in terms of the connection with the horses, it, it just never ceases to amaze me how we're always learning. And no matter how many years go by, there's always that, that um, beautiful moment. It's really nonverbal communication, even though I talked about tone of voice. There's so many moments that are really passed in silence um, that I find just really beautiful about the horse-human bond. Because often, often humans are very, um, you know, output-oriented, and we do a lot of speaking. But really, to be in that nonverbal relationship and to be able to go into that silence, you know, most riders really appreciate that. And so we would start, you know, from eight in the morning and finish about eleven o'clock at night. Um, all the riders would, would take out all of our horses, you know, in the morning, um, make sure everybody's, you know, sound and fresh and, and loosened up and they all have their turnouts and they all have their baths. And then we have various rehearsals throughout the day. And then, you know, the show every evening or, or sometimes two shows on a weekend. But that being said, we spend a lot of times with our horses and that just in, continues to establish, you know, the connection as opposed to taking a horse out, you know, a couple of times a week, you know, they're going to get out you know, two to three times a day. Um, and so wow. just, um, you're just living with them. And I think that that is something that, you know, it, it's just extraordinary. And, you know, doing rodeo that I did for the first eight years, nine years of my riding career, you go and you have a pretty big show season and you do your show on the weekend and you go on to the next one. But to do, you know, seven, 10 shows a week, um, 260 dates out of a year, that's a, a different mindset. And so where you get with your equine partner, your co-star, um, how you keep it fresh in terms of, um, you know, not getting sour uh, because you have to go out and do it again, um, that becomes such a skill. And I think I, it really shows a testament that if horses really don't want to perform, they, they, they we can't put them on stage basically like it shows up really quick. So the ones right. who are there, they really want to be there. And um, I mean, you know, quick story, but we had like a great uh, trick riding horse, but he was really uncomfortable on, on tour and he would be really kind of false colicky and didn't matter. He was, you know, totally sound, but he just wasn't, he did, didn't work out and we would never want to put him in that situation. And so we found another home for him. He ended up getting adopted out to another, you know, person who used to be in the show. It was great, but just, you know, that, those kind of values, we wouldn't keep horses that, um, you know, needed to have injections. If they were getting to the point that they, you know, needed injections, then they would, um, we, we wouldn't put them into that kind of rigor. So all of those ideals and all of those values just felt really good about being a part of. And that's uh, another reason I think why, you know, showing up every day and being a part of that team, riding for that brand, and nobody's perfect. You know, everybody has, um, you know, difficulties and challenges and things over the course of, you know, any company for that many years. But um, we all knew we were part of something extremely transformative. And I think that, you know, with the impression that 
the liberty in, made that that impacted, you know, starting in like 2003, um, I think it really helped to bring liberty into the homes and into the audiences and into the minds and into the consciousness of so many more horse people um, that we saw this exponential growth really in the last two decades because, you know, we had basically a conference of 2000 people every night watching amazing things happen. And um, it was just like really words cannot describe how amazing it was to be a part of that, of that equip, that team. <laughs> yeah. And, and you, um, you bring up, you know, people like Ty and, and Cavalier and, and these people showing that it can be done in a kinder, gentler, more partnership sort of way. Um, I was curious, you know, it's about getting the influencers to speak up, but I was curious, did you see the article about Monty Roberts and the queen? We're actually very good friends. Oh, that's funny. I have Um, heard about that, but I didn't see the recent article. No, it was in USA Today. I posted it out on Facebook a couple of days ago, but it talks about they were on the phone quite a bit and she loved his cowboy hat and she Mm -hmm. dumped cowboy outfit as uh, mm-hmm. official uniform so he wouldn't have to remove his mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome yeah so, well I was just talking to somebody about this recently or, or just today obviously because of um, the queen's recent passing but one of the highlights um, in my career uh, was performing at the queen's 60th jubilee in 2012 and wow. we had over 700 performers from 17 different countries, which are all the countries that she visited on her first royal tour. And of 500 horses were in the arena for the finale and including a huge parade of all the Queen's personal horses. So I have all kinds of, you know, personal experiences and references about how horsey the Queen um, is or was. And um, it was just a fantastic that she would come down and Prince Philip would come down and they would watch and survey and meet the horses and see how everybody was going along. And the fact that um, all of these different cultures were gathering together and they were a lot of them were expressing their art and their cultural dances. But really, it was horses that brought everybody together. And this event was held where the Windsor show uh, takes place in the basically in the, the grounds of Windsor Castle. Um, but again, 500 horses from around the world, riders from 17 different countries, from Oman, they brought over 100 horses, and um, Azerbaijan had a presence, the, the Royal Canadian Mounties were there, but they had, you know, borrowed horses, the Russian Kremlin sent riders that were incredible with their traditional breed that they that they uh, brought, and then of course I was there um, helping to represent the American West. Um, wow. So... Yeah, it's what uh, it's what quite universal. Yeah. It's and you know, isn't it amazing how horses can bring people together from different cultures and help us communicate on some common ground? Mm-hmm. That is just a beautiful what you just shared. Have you thought about writing a book? <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, yeah, for crazy. many, many years. <laughs> many, many years. But um, it's funny that you mentioned that. So today is actually known, it's today, September 21st, um, and it's the International Day of Peace. And as I was reflecting on that, I thought, gosh, you know, horses are really helping us find more peace. Because essentially what everybody wants, more harmony with their horses, better relationships, you know, even success in their business. Ultimately, at the end of that kind of 
seeking, we really are looking for a feeling of peace. And horses have been synonymous with um, kind of helping us through war. And I find how interesting it is that now we're really uh, evolving. Hopefully we're maturing as humans that we're inviting this beautiful creature to really help us find peace and not just to uh, continue to be in a, in a war relationship with them, but really how can they show us more to have that peaceful nature with relations with our, with our families, um, with our greater community at large and with, with nature really. Yeah. And you know, how can we, the question always comes to me um, about how can we help horses find more peace? You know, the, the uh, wild Mustang was uh, also a topic at the conference and um, there have been a, a, a lot of uh, documentaries and uh, opinions about the wild horses. I know there's the Wild Beauty Foundation. The, um, Ashley Avis looks like she's getting ready to put out another movie about the Mustangs. Um, and you've, you've been a pretty, um, thankfully, you've, you've spoken up for horses. You know, what are your thoughts there about the wild horses? Oh, you know, I mean, I really appreciated being at the film festival recently with the, the the show Wild Mustang America's Horse that was also shown because I think it is entirely um, a very, it's a controversial issue, but at the same time, it captures our hearts because it's so identified with American culture, not even if you're just a horse person. I think it really crosses the domains into many different um, I guess to to appeal to all walks of lives to really understand that these are a national heritage and it really is our duty to pay attention and to protect them and as well to understand that there are um, laws in place and to really reach out to our legislators and to really make sure that there's a uh, very um, accountable, uh, actions being taken place where people will really step up and make sure that we're not just kind of sitting up on our laurels and saying, okay, well, this is just what we do every year. How can we continue to improve? How can we continue to make this better? Where can we really correct things? I think if everybody were to come together and be able to come to the table and have more dialogue, I think that has come up so many times as the number one thing that we can all do is really get these voices out. A lot of people don't know. Um, it's it's very common in the horse industry. Uh, we think like, oh yeah, everybody understands, you know, the issues that wild horses are facing. But to be honest, in terms of our whole, you know, population, and really this is this is a global issue as well. Just as people in other countries know about our North American, you know, polar bears, or know know about the um, endangered, you know, white tigers in in Asia, this is really a, a humanities. Um, uh, issue that we should all pay attention to. So I really feel like um, there's more awareness and there's definitely a lot more content. And again, the conference this weekend really highlighted that the most important thing that we can do to capture people's attention and to capture people's um, activism, I should say, to inspire that motivation is really through the medium of storytelling. And part of what I loved about the Mustang film that that aired this past weekend was really hearing, you know, about like the whole history of it and Wild Horse Annie and how 
the Wild uh, Horse and Burrow Act was enacted in 1971, really going back. Um, the director, uh, Stephen, he was saying that he was the first person to actually request the um, the transcript or, you know, the audio from that congressional hearing. Nobody had ever really requested it. So that just shows that it's, you know, we need to remain curious about this. How did those those acts get put into place and what's really the history behind it? And then continue just as we are constantly kind of debriefing, um, you know, our businesses and looking at our bottom line and how can we make corrections here? We need to continually be active about how we can continue to improve, you know, the situation um, you know, really state by state and region by region and as a whole country. To, it's really our responsibility to continue to protect the lands and to protect the access for the wild horses at this point. Yeah. I, I think people don't realize that there's a lot more at stake. You know, those of us who are horse lovers, horse enthusiasts, uh, even make a living around horses. Um, a lot is at stake because how we get the public attitude and the public understanding can impact our own businesses. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a lot of deep thought that, you know, and consideration we need to take and how active we get in taking leadership. Mm -hmm. in that. Mm -hmm. You know, final thought here, I, um, I'm often promoting to equine assisted professionals that the best way that we as an individual can promote the gifts of the horse forward and elevate their value in the public's eye is to simply get our brilliance out there. This is the work that we do. We would love to help you with your conundrums, you know, just putting it mm -hmm. in a general term. Mm -hmm. That's one way that we can really raise the value that the public sees in horses because, you know, you're right. They historically carried, carried us through war. They plowed our fields, hauled our stuff and herded our cattle. And now the real gift of giving us peace and presence is coming forward. What advice or in what ways do you see that we equine assisted professionals can help further the work with horses and elevate their value? Mm, that's such a great question as well. Um, you know, I think ultimately continuing to be a student, you know, being a student of the horse, I have always said that um, the amazing thing about horses is you never stop learning. You know, I think every one of us has a mentor who's maybe in their 70s or even 80s. Like as you get older, you know more with horses and you go gravitate toward those masters and those mentors because it's just through experience that you really continue to, um, again, just continue to build on that mastery. Um, and there's no end, you know, you could be, I could be, say, an expert at my discipline, but then go put me into another discipline and I'm a newborn baby. I have no idea. <laughs> and there's so many different ways that the horses are versatile. And I think as humans, how can we, we be more like horses? How can we uh, be more flexible and be more versatile and continue to learn, to learn about other di disciplines, to learn about other paths, to keep our own self-study going on and really continue to be the student and really putting ourselves, I would say, in the class. Um, and to just continue to develop that authentic presence. You spoke about how we can continue to make it better for our horses. And I think, um, you know, being that peaceful presence and really being mindful of what energy we bring into this space, into every herd, 
you know, into every home, into every interaction, the more mindful, the more we can expand our own sense of observation, self-observation, reflectiveness, our, expand our awareness, the more we can show up better for our horses and for the people that we're around. And, and again, I'll, I'll always circle back to the horses are infinitely non-judgmental. They might have a reaction. They might pin their ears. They might kick and uh, squeal and bite and even leave marks or scars. But then they get over it and they've all found their place. They don't hold grudges. And I think we can learn a lot from, from having more compassion with ourselves, having more compassion and forgiveness with each other. Um, I'm, I'm constantly striving to just, how can we be more like the horses? <laughs> oh, that's great advice. There's so much to learn there and that could be a lifelong endeavor. Kansas, thank you so much for being here with us today and sharing your wisdom, your experience and your insights with the horses throughout your life. It's truly been a pleasure to hear your story and there's so much more out there to read about you. But is there any place where you're going to be performing or doing anything in the future where people might catch catch up with you or offering some clinics? Oh, that's so interesting. Um, you know, lately, I can honestly say this. I'm in a, a real transition point, and it's exciting because I'm not doing as much performing, although I love to, and it's fun, and I, I'm not turning things down, but it's just not becoming the forefront of my um, my offer at this point. Right now, I'm really in that that study of how to help people again develop that authentic presence. How can we look really within ourselves so that we can show up better for the horses? And so, I'm actually going to be going to Australia for the next um, six or seven months and reconnect with a lot of my horse network out there. Uh, I first went back in 1999 for, for the Equitana um, that was held there some time ago. So my family and I will be overseas for some time. And you mentioned, you know, a book I've been writing a lot and I do do clinics um, uh, and they're kind of boutique of just people who invite me to come out. I'm really interested in about just having small groups. And even though trick riding is kind of a thing that attack attracts people and kind of gets them in the door. The thing that I've been having so much fun with is really just building better confidence, building better balance, learning about ourselves. You know, it's not so much the end result about it, but it's about what we learn along the way and having those, those uh, discovery sessions is really what I've been putting more and more energy to. So um, when I come back to North America, I've lived this gypsy life for, for many, many years. And when I come back to North America with my family, we haven't really decided where on the map we're going to land. So might be in Canada, might be East Coast, might be West Coast, might be the U.S. Um, but that's part of what makes it really exciting. I feel like I'm kind of like a horse myself. And so I'm in a, a migratory pattern at this point. And, you know, shifting sands, I'm ready to see what's, what's next, what's, what's turning. How exciting. Well, safe travels to you all. And uh, yeah, it sounds like a, a wonderful, exciting journey and adventure that you're getting ready to embark upon. Well, keep us posted out here so we can catch you should you offer a clinic or something coming up. Yeah, definitely. yeah. I'll definitely be back in, in Montana. I was just speaking with some of the organizers for the um, Montana Center for Horsemanship. And so I'm still going to be connected with them and, and, and offering some things for their students, as well as be back next year for the, for the conference. Um, so yeah, there's, there's always plenty of things. Uh, great. Thank you again for being here.
Oh, thank you, Laura. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah. Oh, and I wouldn't, I would be amiss if I didn't say keep it soulful. (laughs) 